0: I see this parallel paths of each of you on a journey to to find and manifest the true self. Who am I really? And how does that show up in the work that I wanna bring forward to the world, right? Because normally when we when we think of that existential question, you know, the Hollywood picture is that you would each leave your business and go off and do something. But no, it's about actually reshaping the business that you are doing in a way so that the suit fits better with an investment thesis that is not typical where investment thesis is calling forth a kind of different approach to leadership we don't know if these experiments will work out financially right but that's not you know the calling to doing that seemed to be larger for each of you
1: welcome To the Reboot Podcast, we are so glad you're here.
2: There's a reason I'm in this business, um, and there was a reason that I wanted to stay in this business. I just wasn't sure I was making the biggest contribution I could make trying to wear someone else's blue shirt and khakis.
0: (laughs)
1: That statement from one of our guests in this episode, Bryce Roberts, not only made me laugh a bit, but I winced as I recalled my own blue shirt and khaki moment. I mean, literally, I was wearing blue shirt and khakis. Between the summer of my freshman and sophomore year of college, I wore a blue shirt and khakis almost every single day. I had cold called my way into creating an internship with a financial advisory firm that had never had an intern before. I thought it was critical for me to get started early on the money-making path, and I knew financial advisors made money, so I thought it seemed like a reasonable first step. So every morning, 6 a.m., I threw on my Joseph A. Bank khakis and a long-sleeved blue shirt and checked myself in the mirror. I remember vividly just how the pants and shirt hung off me like a boy wearing his dad's suit, and I realized now, looking back, that was perhaps true. I wasn't just putting on the ill-fitting clothes my dad or others may have wanted me to wear. I was putting on an ill-fitting life. Not because going that career path is wrong, not at all, but it was wrong for me. I was choosing to do what I thought I should do, what others wanted me to do, instead of what truly resonated with me and who I was. I didn't know what I was supposed to wear then, but I knew by the awkward, itchy boy looking back at me in the mirror that I had to wear something else. Our guests today, two VCs, Bryce Roberts of OATV and Indie.VC and Chris Marks of Blue Note Ventures, also found the suggested outfit was not a fit for them. They both tried on the standard issue of the VC world and found themselves, like I did, each knowing they were wearing the wrong thing. They both set out on a new path, one that aligned with who they are and what they value. In a conversation with Jerry and each other, They explore the challenges of their journey. And today's podcast may leave you asking yourself, in my own work, what are my values? What are my priorities? What am I wearing today?
2: I'm Rory Sterling. I'm a founding partner here at BGF Ventures. We're based in London and we're a 200 million pound early stage venture fund. I would recommend... Uh, reboot bootcamp, hands down. I, if you're on the edge and thinking about it, I would just do it. you you won't regret it for
3: a second. I think my key my key reflection from the bootcamp weekend is that you can't remove from the work that we do on a daily basis is, is incredibly human. So it's not sitting in front of a computer. You know we are we are interacting with founders and with teams and making decisions that impact people's lives. So it is uh, imperative and it and it, it's your responsibility to invest in yourself if you care about the companies that you invest in to make that dynamic successful.
1: Join us for the 2020 VC Bootcamp this January 23rd through 26th in Boulder, Colorado. Over this long weekend with Team Reboot, we'll work to uncover your authentic leadership style and teach practical skills for managing the array of feelings that can be triggered, all in the name of helping you become the best investor, board member, and supporter you can be. Learn more and apply for the VC Bootcamp at Reboot.io slash VC Bootcamp.
0: Hey, Chris. Hey, Bryce. It's great to uh, see you again. Thanks to you so much for uh, joining the call today. It's been a while since I saw both of you. I guess, Chris, I just saw you a few weeks ago. You're here in Boulder, but Bryce, I haven't seen you probably a couple of months, a year.
2: Uh, well, yeah, we've we've talked on the phone, but yeah, in person, it's good to see your face again. Yeah,
0: you too. You too. So uh, let's take a minute and introduce yourselves. Bryce, if you can go first and, and tell us who you are, and uh, this will give the listeners a chance to sort of separate the voices.
2: You bet. This is Bryce Roberts. I, uh, I founded a venture capital firm 10 years ago called O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures with Tim O'Reilly and Mark Jacobson, um, and I am a, currently a VC, and that's pretty much it.
3: Okay, great. And Chris?
2: Sure. So my name's Chris Marks.
3: I founded a venture fund called Blue Note Ventures a little over a year ago. Uh, I've been doing venture capital for about 15 years, and I am here in Boulder, Colorado. That's Great. Thank you so much, and um, you, you both have
0: been friends of mine for a while. Bryce, a little bit longer than you, Chris, but I've always enjoyed our conversations and 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 really the explorations that we've had. And I was excited about the idea of getting uh, well. First of all, getting two VCs in the same place. Um, we'll see which one of you will get to cry first. <laughs> uh <laughs> <I> did, <so. laughs> but. Um, I was excited because I have been um, fascinated with the endeavors that both of you have undertaken. One on the on on the one hand, Chris, with Blue Note and, and your thoughts around authenticity and authentic leadership. And Bryce, the NDVC initiative and, and your thoughts about that. So let's maybe by way of just sort of launching in, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what those initiatives are? And and Chris, if you don't mind, why don't you go first and tell us a little bit about uh, Blue Note?
3: Sure. Um, As I mentioned, I I started Blue Note a little over a year ago. Um, Blue Note is an early stage venture capital fund. Uh, We invest in great technology companies and serve entrepreneurs committed to authentic leadership. So, that was uh, kind of the vision I came to after um, lots of thought uh, around what I liked about venture and what I didn't like, uh, what had worked over the last 15 years, and what hadn't worked, and uh, several uncomfortable coffee discussions with you, Jerry. So that's <laughs> uh, that's really where I landed. Um, I finished. Uh, I did a first close in the fund around the end of last year. Uh, a second close a few months ago. Uh, we have uh, made our first couple of investments, and the idea there is really to uh, model um, a relationship and an authentic um, set of values for uh, the entrepreneurs we work with and the entrepreneurial community in general, uh, and to identify those entrepreneurs and those businesses that kind of fit that model and that mold. So I, uh, you know, thank you for that, and I'm going to just jump in uh, on that so
0: uncomfortable conversation with me. I, I, re- I do remember a walk in Madison Square Park in New York where I sort of, kind of, kind of called you on on it, didn't I,
3: Chris? Yeah, yeah, you you did more than once. I think uh, it all started with, you know, a couple of years ago. We'd get together maybe every month when you were in Boulder, and we'd talk about reboot and where you were going with that, and then you'd say, so how's the new fun coming? And I think it was six months in a row where I said, Well, I'm not, you know, haven't really started yet. It's getting there. I'm thinking about it. And finally, you know, I think it was that sixth meeting where you looked at me and said, So, what's really going on? Why Mm -hmm. why haven't you started this? And uh, the truth was uh, that you helped me see is that I really wasn't excited about doing just another venture fund. And so then it took a a few more uh, cycles and a little bit more conversation to figure out exactly what I was excited about. Uh, and yes, that walk in, in the park in New York was one where uh, you asked me, I think, 10 times in the course of that. We did a few loops around the yes. park, I think about 10 times <laughs> you know, why I was doing it, why I was doing it. Um, and so, yeah, that was that was helpful.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I remember that well. And, and uh, I'm really proud of the fact that, you know, as a friend, I was able to just sort of kind of jump in there and help you a little bit with what I think is connecting to a deeper purpose.
3: Yeah, I agree. I, I appreciated the support. Um, as always, you were there to ask the, the hard question and, and get to the right answer. So it's been, uh, it's been an exciting ride ever since. So Bryce,
0: I, 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 you know, I have the good fortune of being able to watch both of you on video, and I saw you staring at the screen, looking at him and kind of smiling. Um, what would you think of what uh, Chris was just sharing?
2: You know, I, I think um, I think our business doesn't really reward people publicly for thinking differently. I think, yeah, if you look at the people who really have had an impact on the venture business over the last several decades, they're people who um, took a leap and broke a mold and tried a different approach. And so frequently in venture capital and the work that we do, we uh, our incentives are to keep doing stuff that works, and that's been working, and dissuade you from trying to do much of anything different than what you have been doing. And so I love hearing from, you know, fellow practitioners, people who care about founders, that they want to do something different, that they're willing to kind of put themselves out there and take some risks. And, you know, I think history suggests that I'll get rewarded for doing that. So I, I, my smile was, ah, a fellow traveler, right? Someone who's (laughs) someone who's willing to kind of question the status quo.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you don't mind, share a little bit of your own story with regard to NDVC because
2: I see some parallels here. Am I crazy? No, no, I don't think so at all. I mean, you know, as as we're having this conversation and you were accounting kind of how you two got connected, I'm reminded of how we got connected, which was probably, what, four years ago now, and that was, you know, I was going through a pretty major um Decision point around my life and my work and career, and 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 there were a lot of, of really conventional opportunities in front of me, both to continue to run OATV, but then there were you know all of these other opportunities in the venture world that I was um, confronted with, and it was during that time that I started to really reflect on my years as a VC and my experience working with entrepreneurs, and and recognizing that. Um, in a lot of ways, like I was playing somebody else's game, <laughs> and that was very eye opening for me that um that that there was there's a reason I'm in this business, um and there was a reason that I wanted to stay in this business. I just wasn't sure I was making the biggest contribution I could make trying to wear someone else's. Blue shirt and khakis. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now, for, for for our listeners who don't know, the blue shirt khaki uniform is well known in the venture business.
2: <laughs> but, yes. but so yeah, I mean, you know, at the time we got connected, I was I was playing by the rules, right? I'd moved uh, from Salt Lake City, Utah, where we had started OATV. I'd moved to the Bay Area. Was living in San Francisco. I have a big family. We were trying to kind of come to terms with putting our roots down in San Francisco. And as much as we enjoyed aspects of being in San Francisco and as much as I enjoyed aspects of working full-time in San Francisco, it was just the body was rejecting the organ. And I was struggling with that. And um, And so it it gave me an opportunity, I think, through our conversations, it gave me an opportunity to explore, okay, I'm trying to play the game like everybody else is supposed to play it, and that all these years that I've been doing venture, I'm doing exactly what people told me I should do, and I'm not happy. And so maybe I should jump to another fund, or maybe I should um, try something different. And I think what was... which. I think what kind of set the course for the NDVC stuff that that you're referring to is the different that I chose was to be me and to try to embody through my work and my personal life that um, I've always felt a relatively strong connection to who I was, what I value, how I want to live my life. And I think at that point in my career, I'd gotten started in the venture business young I started a fund relatively young. I hadn't really given myself permission to kind of own it and to be the boss and to make decisions the way I want to make decisions and be held accountable for those. And so um, ultimately I decided, this was back in 2012, I decided to move uh, from San Francisco back to Salt Lake City. So my family's been here since for the last three years. And, and I think um, that move really... Um, making that move and recognizing that like it was okay you know the investors came back for the next fund uh my partners didn't bail on me the companies didn't flounder because i wasn't around i wasn't seeing less interesting you know fewer things that were interesting to invest in um but that by embracing that it really you know kind of uh showed me that as i the more i embraced who i was and let that reflect in my work that good things happen. Um, and that made me think about is, you know, I I got thinking a lot about the founders that I work with and, and are they able to express themselves in the most real relevant way possible, or are they kind of trying to fit this mold? And, And fortunately a couple of years ago, uh, Eileen Lee from, you know, Cowboy Ventures gave it a name, right? What were they trying to be? They were trying to be a unicorn. They were trying to fit this profile of a company and profile of a founder. And they would, you know, we we'd study incessantly the moves that Zuckerberg and Kalanick and all these guys were making on their way to creating massively valuable companies. And that became the pattern recognition that became the really well-worn understood that became the blue shirt and khakis, right? That became a very well understood way and not just understood, but the way to be an entrepreneur. And so um, I started to wonder um, if that was healthy or if we could somehow, um, you know, because when you look at the numbers, right, when you look at the numbers, 0.07% of the companies in Eileen's study had become a billion dollar or greater valued company. And so if you take that slice of entrepreneurship, which is actually a relatively narrow slice in the grand scheme of startups, right. And people who are trying to launch businesses, if you look at that and you say, okay, applying those same, filters, applying those same values, applying the same focus that VC tends to put on an entrepreneur, we're recognizing that that venture product um, and the way it's constructed, it works for 0.07% of entrepreneurs. As we know, it's those unicorn companies that drive all of the value that's created for LPs that invest in this asset class. And so um, the Indie VC experiment was to say, okay, that's a pretty well-understood path, um, but it's a relatively narrow slice. And yet those people benefit um, significantly from the resources that a venture investor brings to bear. And so you have this kind of, these two worlds that aren't connecting, this kind of bootstrapped entrepreneur and this kind of value-added uh, networked VC. Um, and yet, if you get on that VC track, it's a very narrow path that you get to follow, essentially. And so could we, could we kind of cast the net a little wider? Could we open up, you know, kind of create a different funding model that said, we're going to give you, we're going to release the pressure valve. If you aren't a unicorn and you can't reach that kind of value in the next five to seven years, we have this option, right? That if you've created a business that you love, and you want to continue to grow it, maybe you don't want to raise any more outside money, you can start making a cash distribution to us as your investment partner that we cap at a certain point. But that the encouragement is to build a long term durable business, not to focus on how do you get to the next fundable milestone? Because how many board meetings have we sat in, you know, directly after someone has taken outside funding, whether it's a million dollars or $10 million, and someone at the table brings up, okay, what milestones do we need to have to hit to raise our next?
0: To get to the next
2: valuation increase. To get to the next valuation increase, to be able to bring in that next amount of investment dollars. Right. And so af- after having watched that process kind of chew up and spit out so many founders who I really loved working with and who probably had some great businesses in there that just didn't fit the mold, I thought, let's try something different. In the same way that I think differences have, have you know, people who've tried things differently have overly benefited here in the venture world. I think potentially there's an opportunity to do that. So at the first of at the first of this year, I put up kind of a landing page talking about this this project, this little experiment we did at, at a site called Indie.vc, I-N-D-I-E.vc, and kind of laid out a little bit of the thinking. Uh, it was very raw. Uh, there was no indication of who was behind it. But the day that I published it and it went live, some people started emailing about it. And the next thing I knew, it just blew up. And so where I was kind of expecting tens of people to kind of find it and, and, and submit for it, we had 500 plus people submit to it with no press, no nothing, just you know, kind of spreading through people's networks. And I think you know, um, the opportunity for me that you and I have talked about and, and that I think is really interesting is that we've tapped into something. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is, but we've tapped into something, and I think we owe it to ourselves to play it out a little longer and see, you know, who else kind of rallies around this? Who else does this speak to? And who can we help uh, bring those ideas, those values that they have into their businesses uh, that may or may not look like what a traditional Sand Hill Road investor would be interested in, in backing? So that's, that's the NDVC thing. So thank, thank you for
0: that. The- so I want to I connect these two thoughts and then expand it, because I think the two of you have done something really remarkable and notable, which is that both of you have tapped into your own experiences, quite frankly, to empathetically connect with entrepreneurs in a different way. Both of you, in a sense, are calling for people to not wear somebody else's suit, somebody else's ill-fitting suit. And created structures to try to manifest that and see what can happen, even if it's not the traditional way of going about doing things. Am I seeing this correctly? You're both nodding.
3: Chris, am I seeing this correctly? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, breaking from the mold, uh, as Bryce was just describing, is, is it's hard to do in this industry. You know, I remember Jerry when we were talking about it i think your line was uh you know when you're standing at the urinal just look straight forward uh, <laughs> it, it, there's it's it's tough because uh you wonder about the acceptance in this industry like anywhere else and you wonder what what other people are going to say or how the market's going to react to it as bryce said you put something out there and then you just sit back and you, and you wait to see how it's accepted or not but um the comfort you can get in knowing it's uh Something that you're genuine, you know that reflects genuinely where you're coming from uh, makes it makes it worthwhile and i I think that um, you know both of these again another thing that Bryce was talking about that I can relate to is this idea of Jerry, I looked for a long time for someone to do this with for someone to kind of launch this next fund with, and what it comes down to at the end of the day is uh, if you want to do it the way you want to do it. You want it to be reflective of your passions and where you want to go. You just kind of have to do it. Um, and I think that's how a lot of entrepreneurs get to that point of staring over the cliff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and taking that first step can be the hardest part. It, it uh, it, you know, I know it was for me and it, and it sounds like Bryce gave it a lot of thought as well. Um, but I, I think that vein of, of kind of taking that step outside the norm and doing it for, uh, something that we both believed in kind of runs through both those stories for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I I see that, and and having known the two of you, I knew that you were both in parallel working through the same sorts of of kinds of uh, issues, and and you know, in a sense, I see this parallel paths of each of you on a journey to to find and manifest the true self. Who who am I really? And how does that show up in the work that I want to bring forward to the world, right? Because normally when we when we think of that existential question, you know, the Hollywood picture is that you would each leave your business and go off and do something. But no, it's about actually reshaping the business that you are, are doing in a way so that the suit fits better, you know, and that whether it's VC or it's OATV being run out of your home in Salt Lake, where you and your family take precedence over playing the game, you know, or Chris, you being brave enough to actually launch a fund kind of by yourself with an investment thesis that is not typical, where investment thesis is calling forth a kind of different uh, approach to leadership. We don't know if these experiments will work out financially. Right. But that's not you know, the calling to doing that seemed to be larger for each of you. You're both nodding.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'll just say, you know, I um in my past life before I got into venture, I was a, a corporate lawyer. I was a deal lawyer. And, um, you know, I was taught that that uh, you do that without. Any emotional connection to what you're working on, otherwise, it's dangerous. And when I got into ventures, I'm sure Bryce found in his early years it was much the same. The idea was to um, to to really let the spreadsheets do a lot of the the decision making um, for you, and um, kind of a, a, a the relationship was really based on um, the negotiation and the capital that got you involved in the the deal in the first place. And and so breaking down some of that, you know, kind of the evolution of getting away from that and, and kind of recognizing that the relational piece of it can actually be a strength. And I do think it's a, a strength. We we don't know whether these plans will work out financially. You're right. But I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was a good investment strategy at the end of the day. Uh, if any of my LPs are listening to this, that's certainly <laughs> the case. But you're right. I mean, the evolution away from the traditional model and the evolution away from what's known and comfortable and had made a lot of people a lot of money and been very successful was was uh, was the challenge. Mm.
0: Bryce, any, any
3: response to that? Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think in this business, you're going to process the risk a couple different ways. One is, you know, will I have support from investors? Will I have support from LPs? Right. And so, you know, with, with OATB, we've built a great franchise over the last decade. We have three funds. We've turned away more money on our last fund than we took in. I mean, it's, it's just been a great performing fund and, and, and we've been able to do well. Um, and I know, Jerry, when you and I talked about, okay, I want to kind of make this, make this pretty big transition. Like, there's something here, and i got to keep tugging on it. I need to give this NDVC idea a little bit more space to kind of um, see, what, see what it has to offer. Um, I remember you, we talked about what could happen with the LPs, right? And you said, okay, what's the worst they could say? I said, well, they could say no, and that would be pretty terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, well, what if they did? Would you not do it if they if they did? And um, they did say no. A lot of them said no, actually, with the, with the transition to go. So to go from a fund where you are turning away more money than you're taking in to a fund where you are scrambling to get you know even a handful of your old LPs to believe in what it is you're trying to do, and the change you're trying to make, and the impact you want to have, and what that will mean. In terms of financial returns, um, they did say no. But you know what? Some didn't. You know, and so now, so now we've got the real believers. Now we've got people who actually care about this and are invested in this in a new way. And it also gives us an opportunity to go and find the people who can be most additive from an investor standpoint. Um, So that's the one risk. Will they go away? Will they believe in what it is we're trying to do? And on the flip side of that, now I would imagine, you know. Chris thinks about this a lot too, which is, does what we're saying even matter? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, will will it attract the very best entrepreneurs? Or do the best entrepreneurs, are they just going to go to Sand Hill Road anyway? Do they just want to play the game everybody else plays? Or is there something about the way that we talk to founders? Is there something about the way that we work or that we embody values or that we reflect those things in what we write? Tweet, what we say, whatever it is, will those signals, you know, transmit and magnetize the right entrepreneurs, the founders who really want to have an impact, the founders who can build big, durable companies with our involvement, um, or will it scare them off? That's the big risk, right? And we won't know for a long time on that. But, you know, uh, my hope is, and I think what we've seen so far, at least in our little experiment, and I i love to hear what Chris is finding in his is that, yeah, the caliber of entrepreneurs is fantastic. I, I wrote a post recently called the Peace Dividend of the Seed Surge, which was, you know, we've had seven, seven times more founders raise a million dollars or more over the last 10 years. And many of those have felt now what it means to take on piles of venture capital seven times more people have felt what that pressure feels like. They've tried to fit into that unicorn costume over and over and over again. And maybe they want something different the next time around. And you know what? When you look at Eileen's study, it's the second and third time entrepreneurs who tend to be making the big breakthrough companies. And so if you look different, if you give them an alternative path, um, maybe that'll attract the right kinds of folks. And I can't help but think that it will.
0: What do you think Chris? What do you think about
3: yeah. the process?
2: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, I think
3: both on the I, I felt it uh heavily on the LP side for sure. Um, you know, when I would lay out my vision for Blue Note Ventures uh in the leadership piece in particular, the reaction was always very obvious to me. It was either resonating with someone in, in which case um the pitch would tend to go one direction, or <laughs> it was absolutely not resonating, in which case, um, I knew it was probably not a great use of either of our time. And and that was very hard for me at first, um, for sure, when I was looking to get those first anchor LPs, and I was uh, operating with a fear that it wasn't going to get to a point where it could be real. That was hard for me to stick to the script. Um, but but I, I did. And much like Bryce, I think at the end of the day, um, the people who are on board, um, are the true believers and, um, wanted to come along for the ride and wanted to be part of the the vision. So I was excited about that on the entrepreneur side. Um, I absolutely believe, um, that, uh, it, it will resonate with the right people. Um, and I think, one of the primary drivers of that is because of the entrepreneurs themselves um, that we've worked with. Um, that continues to be the the best source of my deal flow and the best. Uh, I think for for any entrepreneur um, trying to understand what it's like working with an investor, the best thing you can do is talk to other other entrepreneurs they've worked with. I mean, it's uh, it's out there. It's available. It's a real thing. Um, everyone has their own style, not just the two of us. Everyone is a little bit different in the way they do it, the way they go about it. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, uh, if you stay true to who you are and you interact with the entrepreneurs in a way that, um, comes from your heart and, uh, speaks to who you are, then that message gets out there.
0: You know, I'm glad you, 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 you shifted it, you know, Chris, to that because, uh, and I'm going to sound a little bit like your older brother, guys, because I'm older than both of you. For, you know, from where I sit, and um, I've been I've been coaching now for ten years. The number of entrepreneurs who speak to the same issues that both of you have spoken to, and and Eileen did us all a favor by giving us language around this unicorn, but but she did not identify something new. She identified a phenomena that's been going on, I think, as long as human beings have been together, which is this phenomena of ourselves pretending to be someone we're not. And who we pretend to be depends on different society factors, right? When I was coming of age as an adult, it was pretend to be Bill Gates, right? And then it was pretend to be Zuckerberg. And then it was pretend to be this one and pretend to be that one and pretend to be this one. And the result is this constant uh, diminution of self to the point where people walk around going, who the fuck am I? I've been pretending to be someone else for so long that I'm disconnected from who I truly am. And the pain of that And Buddhism, we call it dukkha. This this existential pain of being just disconnected from the truest sense of our own values. That's that's not a phenomena that is limited to these times, to these unicorn times. Now, I say this because I'm going to say something to you guys that I often say to other coaches who are just beginning. This experience of pain... you've both had, of trying to raise money from LPs and facing rejections, of trying to do things differently, of trying to fit and wear a different suit that is more fitting for you, do not forget that feeling. The entrepreneurs are dealing with that every single day. Every single day. And you get to have a superpower. You get to have a distinct competitive advantage because you get to know what it's like to walk in their shoes. Not in some theoretical way of, oh, I get, I understand what it's like to build a company. Yeah, that's important because you've both been entrepreneurs in your own way. But you get to know what it's like every day to have to make choices around family or friends or face rejection. And that's an experience that I think entrepreneurs will resonate with because when they come to my office and they sit on my couch and they cry what they're really looking for is a partner you know chris you started to say something before you said the entrepreneurs with whom we or for whom we work or we work for and then you corrected yourself work with but i think your first instinct was spot
3: on
2: right right so yeah, Jerry, it, how, Jerry, how do we help them connect to that? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because as you know, the coaching, um, client relationship is different than a VC. I'm your boss. I'm your board member. My job as a board member is to hire and fire you, right? <laughs> how do we give them a place, make it available, you know, empower them. That's because you're right. I mean, you and I have gone back and forth on this a little bit, which is, you know, I'm not, I don't come from an operating background. You know, I, I'm not going to be that board member who's saying, hey, I'm looking at your margins right now. And I know, like, eh. this is going on or that's going on, Some, you know, or, hey, I was in that when I was a CEO. I knew exactly how to handle this. And here's what you do. Right.
0: Right. OK, so I'm going to coach you, Bryce. OK, what feeling do you have behind the observation hey i don't come from that operation back operational background i can't talk to you about margins what feeling about yourself is implicit in that statement
2: that i don't look like some other vcs right potentially don't come from the same background that people say you're supposed to have to be a super vc
0: right and so therefore you're inadequate in some capacity sure. aren't you right sure. Right. So hold on to the connection to that feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm slightly inadequate. I'm less than. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is it true? Of
2: course not. (laughs) Of course Uh, not. not. Of course not. And and you and I both know the person across the table from me is feeling the exact same way. Exactly. (laughs) Right? Right. And so what you're really
0: asking is how do I help them? Well, the first thing we do and Brad Feld and I will talk about this a lot in the VC boot camp we're gonna do this this spring. But the first thing you do is take care of your own internal insecurities. Do not do the violence and project them onto the entrepreneur. Because I feel inadequate, I'm gonna overstate what I'm about to say and get aggressive. Your margins suck. Well, what the fuck do I know? Mm-hmm. I'm just a VC. I haven't run a business in 15 years, right? right. And but, I just, all, but I just read Fred's post But about I just read, it. right, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. And, right, and we all- care about your gross margin. And we're, and we're all laughing because we've all sat in those board meetings where the blowhard starts talking, right? And so rule number one, get control of your own feelings. Acknowledge what's going on. So a simple thing is, hey, I don't have any experience in this particular area, but what occurs to me is this question, right? One of the things that I always observed is that board members tend to ask too few questions and make too many statements. You know what I mean, guys?
3: Yeah, no, I I know what you mean. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, when I first laid out the... Um, idea for Blue Note Ventures, a lot of people would come to me and say, well, that sounds great. How are you going to know who the authentic leaders are? And I got this very uncomfortable, queasy feeling in my stomach that that is the last thing I wanted to be, was in a position of uh, ordaining who was an authentic leader and who was not. That is, And a lot of it came down to to that very feeling. And And what I realized, Jerry, to your point was, first things first, let me try and model what I want it to be first. God bless. In terms you. of uh in terms of some of those traits that and look, it's all aspirational. We can talk about it all day long. I'm never gonna be Bryce is never gonna be Jerry, you're never gonna be, although you, you might, I'm not sure. You might be one exception, but we'll no. talk about that another <laughs> time. We're never gonna all get there. So the, the question is along that you know aspirational journey, uh how can you model it? And I've also found Along the way is when you try and do that, it's the quickest way to get the entrepreneurs you're you're talking to or the entrepreneurs you're working for to uh, to go there as well. It, it, it creates a much safer environment for them. It creates a much more open dialogue, and it kind of immediately breaks down some of the barriers that create the exchange that you and Bryce were just talking about, um, which gets nowhere fast. that's right. so so I think you said it incredibly well.
0: You know, Bryce, to to, to your question, you know, how do we help? First, understand what's going on for you. What I often call radical self-inquiry. What the heck is, oh, my insecurity just got triggered. Now I'm about to speak. In that moment, I have a choice. I can be aggressive or I can be supportive and generative in the relationship. Second, to Chris's point, to really connect back into the experience that the, that the entrepreneur is having, what's going on? I'm reminded of Thich Nhat Hans' quote, "Peace begins with me." Someone has to be brave enough to go first. Someone has to be brave enough in the middle of that boardroom to say, "I don't really have the answer, but here's a guess create space. I could be wrong. I'm just going on a gut feel here. Or, hey, I have four other companies in my portfolio and I'm doing that crazy thing that VCs do, which is pattern matching. Because I have four other companies, therefore, I think I know the truth. When I mean, the truth is invented every single time in every single investment. There are things to learn that you can carry over, right? but a kind of spaciousness around that. And I think that the first way it happens is that you you have to get control of your own insecurity, which are constant and inevitable and always there. I don't know. Does this resonate with the two of you? I could be
2: wrong. No, I mean, I <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know as as you've probably experienced there's oftentimes two conversations going on in the board meeting there is the business of the board meeting and then there's the show of the board meeting yeah right the you know you're you're now on a board with someone who has a great investment track record and you want them to see you as just super sharp and the next time you show them the the thing you're really excited about that they're going to lead it You're going to look really, really smart. Your LPS are going to think you're really smart, and you've built this relationship there, right in front of your CEO, right in front of the right in the board meeting, by making that super insightful question about their margins, right? And those are two very different things. Those are two very different, you know. um, Well, I think I think I think conversations. I
0: I think you speak to another thing that that investors can do to help the entrepreneurs. Just like CEOs can do to help themselves and help their staff. Don't use the organization to deal with your unresolved issues. Right. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. You know, Carl Jung said that the worst thing a parent can do is to ask their children to finish their business for them. Well, the worst thing a CEO can do is use the organization to, to, to manage their unresolved issues. Same thing with investors. Don't use that situation to prove that you know what you're doing as an investor, Mm -hmm. right? Your first obligation is actually to return and to make a return on investment to the shareholders, Mm -hmm. which include the receptionist who's sitting on a few options, not just your LPs. You're smiling and nodding, Chris. You recognize this
3: yeah I mean it's it's incredibly common uh, behavior as Bryce was talking about the the two conversations going on it it captured some element of most board meetings I've sat in for the last uh, 15 years, so it it absolutely happens. Um, and even even if you're lucky enough to create a more authentic relationship with the CEO uh, or the founders, it, it often still uh, rears its ugly head in certain settings, like the boardroom, where other people are involved, um, and and sometimes that can just be inevitable. But uh, I mean that, you know, getting to the point where you are today in your career, and for me, you know, there are a lot of little learning moments along the way. But one of them that stands out as we're talking about this was just, you know, a a CEO who. I, I am still invested into with today, um and and he's building a great company, and it's been a pleasure. But along the way, there was a time early on where I felt like he was making decisions for the company based on some personal things going on in his life. And rather than address that with him, i was in the I was on the other tier of conversation. I was trying to just point out how stupid the decisions were uh, in the midst of the the board discussion. And, uh, thankfully we had enough of a relationship underneath all that to unwind it later and figure it out. And it really became an instructive moment to me. And, and again, one of the impetuses behind where I went with, with blue note, just because it happens all the time. It's just human nature. It's inevitable. And, you know, I guess one of the things I try and do now early on when I'm talking to entrepreneurs and getting to know them is, is really understand why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, like we've talked about why we're doing what we're doing. Why are they doing? And there's always a business reason, market opportunity, this, that, but why else? Uh, I may agree with it or I may not, but at least I know what it is. And then I can help put the decisions that are being made in that context. And they need to be. To ignore it is just to ignore um, you know, a really powerful force in the CEO's life. And, and, and you can't help them with it or her with it, or you can't um, You know, you're just limiting your effectiveness if you uh, choose to ignore that side of it.
0: I I think you just named something also, you know, uh, that's that's equally powerful here, which is by having done the work yourselves and connected to your own sense of purpose. Why do I do what I do? It opens you up to ask that question of the relationship, whether it's a, a potential investee or it's a potential or it's an existing CEO. It's really powerful. And as, as, as many folks who've listened to a podcast know, one of the things that I've often encouraged people to do is connect back to those underlying psychological forces at work because they tell us a lot. And if we surface them, they become a really a great source of power. I did not know this at the time of the story I'm about to tell you, but it does recall something for me, which was in the early days at Flatiron, uh, everybody was trying to copy everybody else's business model, and this one guy came in, uh, pitching his company, and it, what it was was basically a Yahoo-like service. The only difference was that every time you opened up the home page, uh, that ping to the server was registered. And you got uh, entered in a contest, and you got to win ten thousand. You know, every day somebody would win ten thousand dollars. So basically, what he was basically doing was buying traffic, right? And I remember just being so repulsed by the business model, right? It basically, you know, there was no, there was not a single value add to the experience except appealing to this like notion of, you know, make it your home page, and every time you open up your browser, you get you get entered and win. And I said to him something really, I think, important. I said, why, why are you doing this business? And he said to me, I went to business school. And the people I went to business school with, uh, I'm much smarter than they are. And the people I went to business school, a whole bunch of them have launched internet businesses. And they're wealthy, and I want to be wealthy, too. And that was his reason. <laughs> and I did so- not fund the business. <laughs> <laughs> But now that I've been a coach for so long, what I would have done is talk to them about the sense of inadequacy that's implicit in that, right? And said that perhaps there's a different way to approach that sense than just trying to mimic and prove himself as smart as his grad school uh, classmates. So.
2: I have the flip side of that. So I, me. I, I, I met this entrepreneur, um, which was so um similar situation kind of turned off you know by less about what they were building just kind of more their ethos right kind of long hair kind of ponytail said he was a day trader um wasn't you know what you know ha- had like all these really clever spins on what he was building and and um really sold himself as this as as this kind of Savvy stock trading, day trading kind of person. and you know I, I I was really turned off by the whole veneer of what was going on, nor but I didn't take the time like you didn't with this entrepreneur to kind of peel back those layers and figure out what was going on. so um many years later. Uh, you know, it's 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 Perry uh, Chen from Kickstarter. I was, to him. I was talking to Fred, and I was like, "What did I miss? Like, how did I like? We saw it before you did. How did I miss this? Company said you missed Perry and missed Perry. And so I, you know, fortunately, I could, you know, I still kept a relationship with him. And I reached out. I said, "How did I miss you? <laughs> said, well, I couldn't tell you that I was a waiter." I couldn't tell you that I was an artist. I had to, (laughs) I had to come up with some credible persona that someone would fund. So that's the other part of it too. Is um, sometimes you miss the right ones, and other times you get you know um, other times you miss them for the for the reasons we both did with these that we didn't take the time to unpack it with them and figure out who they were. And unfortunately, in just the volume of things we end up looking at in our business. You know, some of those do slip through the cracks.
0: Oh, that's a a funny story. That's a hysterical story. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for this. This was really a really great conversation, and I know people are going to enjoy it. Um, As I said to you before the call, you know, I've wanted you guys to meet for such a long time. And uh, I finally made it happen uh, by way of the podcast. And now you understand why
2: absolutely uh, yeah you know,
0: and so go off and go do good things together <laughs>
2: <laughs> we will We will. all right uh, and, and thanks for all of your support through all of it it sounds like from from this conversation we both benefited um tremendously having you in our corners so thanks for everything jerry
0: well it's my pleasure you know it's 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 just a delight to work with people that i really care about and i care about both of you
2: same likewise
3: likewise thanks jerry
1: If you enjoyed this episode, go to Reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show, just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at Reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
2: How long till my soul gets it right?
1: Are you looking to stay up to date on all things Reboot? Join our mailing list to receive updates on the podcast, including our most recent episodes, corresponding blog posts, and updates on exclusive Reboot services and events. Head to reboot.io slash up.